The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the July 24th, 2012 edition of Ask a Leader. Today we're going to run the demographic gamut from school-aged children with learning differences in the first half of the show to the beneficiaries of our Medicare system. Karen Lerner, principal of Prentice School, will talk about her what her school offers, high school students and middle schoolers. Then, during the second half of the show, we'll hear from David Sion, regional administrator of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid to talk about the rights and benefits that patients get and should expect from their federal medical insurance programs. Don't go away, we'll be right back. Thanks for joining us back with Ask a Leader. My first guest is Karen Lerner, the principal of Prentice High School and Middle School, founded in 1986, offering college prep and or vocational classes. Many of my listeners know her as a member of the UCI community, but they may not know about her uncanny preparation toward this administrative role in which she serves. Before joining the administrative team nine years ago, she taught in the junior high program for nine years. She is also a parent of a former Prentice student and is married to a founding board member. Karen holds a multiple subject teaching credential from UCI, a learning disabilities special education credential from Chapman, and administrative services credential from UCI. She's also completed various teacher training programs, and I want to mention, though, that she uh, has was previously trained in dance education, um, a BA in dance uh, at Rutgers, and a New York University Master's of Arts before coming to Prentice, that is. She was a member of the dance faculty at both UCI and Chapman University. As I was talking about the member of the community, she's also the wife of a guest whose tribute interview we did a year ago when he, Dr. Mark Lerner, retired from his pediatric practice at UCI to become the medical director at Orange County. Well, welcome to Ask a Leader today, Karen Lerner. Hello. Nice to be here. It's good to have you on and talk to us about the very special school that is Prentice School. It's in, it's got a Santa Ana address, but it's located in the, you call it the North Tustin area, is that correct? That's correct. And so what I'd like for you to do is walk us through the the um, the special distinguishing features of your pedagogy. Would you explain what it means and what it entails? Okay. Prentice is a private school. We used to be a non-public school uh, quite a few years ago. And um, California is one of those few school uh, states that has three de- designations. They have private schools, they have public schools, and they have non-public schools. So we had students uh, until just a couple of years ago who were funded by school districts. But uh, rules changed Sacramento, money became harder to find in the state, and we became a private school. We are um, a, a private designation so that we have an admissions procedure that's completely encompassing um, our students and we have an admissions uh, procedure that, in, that involves people who are speech pathologists, people who are school psychologists and administrators, and our students all are screened in this way that we teach, and then they also have to visit for a couple of days. So we really try to uh, capture students 
um, that would work well for our school. Our school's uh, mission is to educate students with specific learning differences and specific language differences primarily. And we teach using the Slingerland approach. And the Slingerland approach, Beth Slingerland uh, came up with this concept of teaching students who had these language differences. Uh, quite a few years ago, she had worked with Anna Gillingham of Orton Gillingham, and Samuel Orton was the pediatric neurologist who really discovered the concept of word blindness, intelligent kids who actually were taught and could not um, learn to read. Uh, he was working in the 1800s with the juvenile uh, justice system and noticed that a disproportionate amount of kids in that system were dyslexic. Um, and still today, if you look in prisons, you will find a disproportionate amount of prisoners who are actually dyslexic and have issues with reading. So. We, uh, so that she worked on this multi-sensory approach instead of doing it in a tutorial fashion, the way Orton Gillingham is taught one-to-one, -one, she put it into a classroom situation. And Karen, and when, yeah. and when did she uh, come on board? You said Ann Gillingham is from Anne, the 1980s. Ann Gillingham, this was years and years ago. That's the 1800s so, when Slingerland? Yeah, well, no, early, this is the early 1900s. Uh -huh. when, when, and Beth Slingerland died quite a few years ago, and she was doing this kind of teaching uh, the pedagogy of, of teaching teachers how to work in the 60s, 70s, 80s, that, those kind of years. So this has been around a really long time. It, re it requires teachers to have 12 units of graduate work. We do ours from the University of San Diego, although the classes are done in our school. And right now, we're just, this is tomorrow's our last day of summer school. So we have a group of teachers, and they are here from like 7.30 till 4.30 every day, five days a week. And they learn much like physicians learn. You uh, watch somebody do master teaching, and then before that, you've seen a lecture and what they're going to be doing. And then you duplicate what you've seen with a few students, and then you get feedback. So all our teachers teach in this Lingerland approach, and they have to do two summers to really spend time, plus a lot of supervision. So we have a very specialized group of teachers. They're all, you know, all, again, because we're WASP credentials, they're all certified by, by uh, California um, teaching credentials. Uh, so we teach in this multisensory way. It's auditory. It's visual and it's kinesthetic simultaneously. So if you're a student who has trouble decoding words, you have problems with visual memory or visual processing, then you're not just going to be getting a book saying, here, read the chapter and do the questions at the end because that's meaningless to you. And if you're a student with auditory processing deficit so that you have problems processing language, have auditory memory, auditory discrimination, you're not just hearing what I'm doing right now, blah, 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 which for a person with auditory processing deficit after a few minutes probably they're tuning me out. Mm -hmm. And if you're a person who's kinesthetically challenged and you have problems with writing, you're just graphic or you have fine motor issues, I'm not just spending time showing you things and expecting you to copy them uh, without having problems with your handwriting. So we work in this multi-sensory way. And if you have weak modalities in all of them, at least you're chaining everything together for a better chance. So all our teachers work in, in this approach. And it works for kids who are dyslexic, but it also, we don't call it dyslexic only. Mm -hmm. Because many parents think if children reverse letters or they transpose numbers, that's dyslexia. And it really is a language processing issue. So we have kids who read beautifully and they can comprehend really well, but they not, don't necessarily write really well. Or sometimes people don't, you know, they have language issues. They're not doing very great expressive language, either orally or written um, some kids have problems listening and as well as reading, you know, uh, receptive language. So we work with kids with lots of different issues, and including anybody who would benefit from the program. So we have a group of students who might have very high-functioning autism, Asperger's syndrome, but they get tricked into um, freaking out in a in another in a comprehensive school where there's a lot of schedules and ch changes and shifts and, and rules that they don't understand. And so it brings up anxiety and they shut down. So we try to be very um, sensitive to the fact that kids come with all sorts of different issues. And as long as they are meet the missions of the school, that they can appropriately learn what we want them to learn as far as our goals and objectives, mm -hmm. and that they can be a, a positive um, contributor to the rest of the students in the school, 
uh, then we're, we'll, they visit. We think it's a good fit, and we have had many students over the years who've left other schools feeling like failures, and we have really been able to turn things around. Our most recent experience was we had uh, we started a high school two years ago, and we had one just two years. Just two years ago, okay. just the high school, although the school has been around uh, for 26 years. But we started the high school two years ago, and as a result, we had our first person who was a senior. I wasn't expecting to have somebody graduate our second year of our high school. And he, uh, we got him turned around as far as organization, as far as executive functioning, as far as connecting to the right people. And he had his choice of three different colleges when he graduated. So it does work when you have everybody wanting to be there with the same mission, including the students. <laughs> so it's, uh-huh. it's a pretty magical place when it works. Well, so Karen, I'm imagining that you're having different students um, enrolled uh, various years uh, in this program. So the yeah. I'm wondering how uh, what's your student to teacher ratio in trying to sort of manage the how far along any of these students have come in mastering and uh, being accommodated and that kind of thing. All in what? What's the ratio? Right. Well, the teachers, again, we don't have to farm people out to the resource person because everybody, the whole school is actually an IEP. It is a resource. Everybody's sort of like ingrained, it's embedded in what's going on. So we try to, with the pre-K... Okay, Actually, Karen, very young, yeah. before you say, go on, not everybody knows what an IEP is. I know oh. what it is, New York, but it's an okay. individualized education program that right. any... It's a plan, individual education plan. Plan right. that right. any special needs, whether it's someone with a delayed development or someone uh, on the other, the super high-performing end, right. they all have IEPs, individualized education plans. So you were saying the whole school... Well, again, it, not everybody gets an IEP. You can have issues. You have to qualify. Right. Each district has their own way of, of qualifying. But let's say that we have we have many students with IEPs, active IEPs from school districts. They just are placed, they, they choose the parents are self-placed them at the school. Uh-huh. We have students with 504 accommodations for otherwise health impaired because they're um, diagnosed with either ADHD or the, on the autism spectrum. And we mm-hmm. have many kids who don't qualify for anything or they qualified when they were uh, initially here, and you have to requalify every three years. It's called a triannual. You have to be retested, and they get retested, and they don't qualify because we've done our job to sort of get their levels to a place where there isn't a big dis- discrepancy between their IQ and their achievement. Okay. But with that in mind, our younger students, because we start in pre-K, we have smaller classes. By the time they're in fourth or fifth, even third, fourth, or fifth, Probably even earlier than that, we try to keep them at a ratio of one teacher to 15 students oh. with an instructional assistant also involved. Wow. When they get to the junior high, we add another uh, student. So it's like 16 students with an instructional assistant and a teacher. Um, and in our high school, so far we haven't had, uh, we, we have, uh, we started with one student. We're probably looking at about 20 this year. So we, in each grade, we don't have all that many students. So it's not, it hasn't been an issue. But I actually am in, in all my years here, and this is like year 20 now, I think sometimes it certainly is a problem if you have a lot of students with competing issues and there's a big classroom size. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to say that that is not uh, a problem, but the research really does indicate that equally you need to have teachers that really know what they're teaching. And so when they try to get all these classes in the public sector down to smaller numbers and they would just try to put anybody, if they were just looking because they needed extra teachers and they throw teachers in, that doesn't necessarily uh, work really well either. Mm-hmm. So if we have to have a class that goes over 16 people by a few people, but I have a teacher that really knows the subject, we're fine with that. Okay. And that has really not been an issue. For those... Listeners who've just joined us, you're listening to Ask a Leader on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming on the web at KUCI.org. My guest is Karen Lerner, principal of both the junior and senior high school at Prentice School in North Tustin area. A, As she said, a... Um, not pro- not prof- non-profit uh, private school for children with learning differences. And we're talking about the, uh, you know, just dreamy class size uh, and uh, teacher-student ratios so that, that their learning uh, differences can be accommodated. Well, how does a student qualify for admission enrollment? How, what, do you, what do they have to go through? What do they have to come prepared with? 
Okay. Well, what happens is we usually get a referral either from a professional. It could be a developmental pediatrician or a psychiatrist or just a psychologist. It can be from uh, educational therapists. Sometimes we have lawyers that know of our work. Uh, we've had people who've told, been told by real estate agents when they were looking in the area. One of our biggest places to, that people are now getting information from is the web. Uh, so we mm-hmm. even have people that relocate. We've had people relocate from other countries to come here. If they're looking at schools and they see gorgeous Orange County and it's a beautiful, we're in a, a former old uh, Tustin Elementary School and it's been completely sort of refurbished, revamped. It's a gorgeous, uh, very bucolic kind of uh, environment. So they might look at other schools in big cities and they'll look at us and go, oh, we'll move here. <laughs> so we've, we've had people come because of the web. Then what we usually, we have this, as I said, an admissions meeting and we look at the file of the student. But really the best indicators are when we can screen a student and we can really see where we're having, you know, where we're seeing this kid have uh, issues, uh, whether it's auditory, visual, or kinesthetic, or a group of different things. We then have the students, if we think it's a good fit after the screening, we have the student visit for a couple of days. And the teachers really are the ones who say, yeah, this is a good fit, or, you know, we think that the mitigating issue is not the issues that we really can work with. And we would love to have more students, but one of the things I think that's really nice about our school is we're fairly, we always have an eye towards the student has to be in the school with the rest of the students, and they have to be taught by our teachers. And it's not fair to a student to put them in an environment that they're not going to be um, uh, well served. And our parents at this point, a lot of times when you're moving or you're looking for places, they're very vulnerable. A lot of times students have been in bad placements before. They're Mm. very vulnerable. So we're certainly not going to take a student we don't think is going to stay. So most of the time, it's a pretty good connection that the students works well in the classroom, they're happy to be here, and we are happy to have them. And as many parents say, thank you, we got our life back because we're not spending hours battling our kids over homework. And many of the students tell me, this is so great because I don't have to explain who I am. I don't have to have people roll their eyes or do all these nonverbal slights to me in class. I can ask questions. I can breathe. I can feel like I am not, you know, looked at differently. So when And the teachers are not, oh, I have to teach one of those kids. It's like they want to be here teaching students who learn differently. Mm-hmm. It's a, we have a very bright group of teachers. They're very creative, and they're pretty flexible. So I care much less about what they're teaching, and I care a lot more about what the students are learning. So if they're not learning what the teacher's teaching, then they got teachers have to find another way to work. And I learned that from teaching at UCI. You know, right. The, the bottom right. was that the bottom line was that you were there to serve. I used to teach dance to kids who were mm. dance majors and people who weren't. And everybody came in. They paid their money. They expected to learn something. So mm. you have to keep readjusting what you're doing depending on who walks in the room. So what do they take away when they're when they finish high school? Because there's no real certification or degree or anything from no, the they earlier levels. No, from high school. But, but right. Par- That's yeah. what I mean. Of the other levels. allied. We partnered with Allied National High School, which is all over the country, but they happen to be housed in Laguna Hills. We right. love those people from Allied. And we told them if they ever move, we're moving with the people that we work with because they're uh, amazingly bright, wonderful, uh, very positive people. So our students can graduate from our high school with a degree. It's common core standards, and um, it's college prep, and it should service them well in colleges. On top of that, though, we also do something completely unique from the rest of the world, I think. We do uh, vocational training, which is now called educational um, uh, technical education. It, it has a different name, but it's what we know as vocational training. Mm-hmm. And we do this in... Um, uh, concurrently. So they can do a college prep program and one class a day is vocational training either in a web design program or in a medical assistant program. And our medical assistant mm. program is designed so they could finish the high school, have a medical assistant uh, certification and then try to get a job. And one of the things I did was put an advisory board together. So I have some real heavy hitters in the community who are at Chalk and UCI so that we really will hopefully get these kids into good internships and externships. So my goal is that everybody shouldn't think that they have to go to college to have a meaningful life. And I, I would prefer to see students get excited about their future earlier on. Remember that most people who teach in school were good in school. 
school and many of our kids, it's a struggle. And so the idea of going to limitless amounts of, of schooling and not knowing where they're going to end up is not something that they're really crazy about doing. So that comes from a, a form, former college person, but um, I, it worked really well. So that's our, our high school. Our junior high, um, kids graduate from the eighth grade. Many of them uh, do not co- go to our high school. They go off to other places. You prepared them. We prepare them. We have kids who've gone to St. Sage and St. Margaret's, Modern Day, J. Sarah, Queen Lutheran, Orange Lutheran, Any Santa public Margarita, schools? and the public schools, and just about every public school around. And uh-huh. uh, again, we will be, uh, I will go, and if they're on an IEP going back to their public high school, I'll be at that meeting helping them place into the classes that they need to be. So the whole idea is that Prentice has always been a school that is supposed to support a high school prep program, but at the same time, we were seeing that we had many students who could get through freshman year, kind of, we call it like bubble-wrapped freshman year, but once they were getting into sophomore, junior, senior year, they were having real issues, and partly it's because of the way, the nature of the way you deal with um, uh, uh, having teachers that are doing um, not special day class, but the resource program. And resource teachers are kind of generalists. I'm a re, you know a, mm-hmm. uh, a special ed person. I don't know a lot about a lot of stuff. I know a lot about dance. So if you're taking econ or poli sci, or in the private schools you're taking a religion class, these things are tend to not be resource. Okay. Many science classes are not resource, but they have a lot of math in it, which is. So you see there's a lot of disconnect sometimes for a student. So we have a lot of bright students, but they're still dyslexic, or they still have processing issues and they and they need support and past a certain grade it's hard for them to get the support so we're seeing these kids who are get kind of getting through freshman year but by sophomore year it's really a struggle by junior year their transcript is in the toilet and in many places they're not comfortable or there is no vocational training aspect. So we've just seen a lot of our kids over the years kind of spend like 10 years at the junior college and then get really, you know, uh, depressed. And I just didn't want to see that anymore. I wanted to do something about it. And we have enough people here who are interested in continuing on with the education. So it's worked out really nicely so far. Well, Karen, is it fair to say that, let's say with the primary levels, you're getting them ready for maybe they could go to a a non-prentice school or for the junior high, they could go to a a non-prentice high school or for the senior high school um, students, they could be ready for um, a, a any kind of a, a vocational additional preparation or any kind of university. And so every every stage at Prentice gets you ready for coping and and managing in a possible mainstream setting. Is that right. part of the goal? The mission of the school is to give you the tools, like in a tool chest, to get you you through life. We teach so many other things. We have family life classes. We have etiquette classes. So my high school etiquette in the workplace has that for I mean so many kids get slammed by the water cooler not by not being able to know what to do in a right. job we have um, and some of these kids are marginalized so you really want them to know what's out there mm-hmm. want them to know about all the newest technology and how that can be really positive and it can also uh, zap you a lot of, of a lot of time and also invade your privacy we have um, students that we we had a banker one of our board members is the vice president of a bank and she did for our high school an amazing program in banking. I mean, those kids are not going to make the problem, the same mistakes that the whole mortgage crisis, they understand the difference between credit and banks and assets and liabilities. And so we went through how to write checks, how to, how to know, uh, you know, how to handle your financial life. Great tools. Um, there's a class I, that we, we run. We have uh, two therapists here. So one of them is just for the high school and the junior high, and one is for the elementary. We have speech pathologists. We have an occupational therapist. So we have our first few kids who are in wheelchairs, and we have a PE program that does adaptive PE. So wow. we really can work with lots of different kids with lots of different issues if, as long as they hit the mission of the school. But what we really try to do is get kids ready for life, give them a lot of information, mm-hmm. and give them a lot of cheerleading. And I think that's a lot of times what kids just need is how – I like to say you can't get on the freeway if you don't know where the on-ramp is. All right. Southern California image. So we exactly. like to be able to sort of be the GPS for the 
these kids to be successful. So many of our kids are like, I don't know how to get started. I don't know what I'm doing. If I, somebody could just explain this to me, I'd be happy to work really hard, but I just don't understand it, and I'm not mm-hmm. understanding it the way the teacher is telling me. So now they're just saying it slower and louder, but I still don't get it. So that's where the flexibility and the knowledge about what the people are teaching really comes in. But our kids do everything. So they can do anything that they're meant to do, but I really think the different kids have different passions, and I've seen that over the years that I've been here. I have kids who've done brilliantly in school, and they've gone on to incredible Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. careers, and I've seen kids who've done brilliantly doing alternative things. Only sometimes it's been a lot of being slammed in the face by education before they could do that. So usually Shine. they were very yes. plucky and they had a lot of perseverance or their family structure was. Well, and then Karen, I see people doing nothing. So that's what we're trying to correct. Well, this is such a, a wonderful kind of a, a whole scheme, as it were. And I, I wanted, are you the only game in town, the only one in the region, in Orange County? Or how far do we have to go to get to a similar kind of a, a pedagogy? Well, we have, there are schools that are like ours in L.A., um, that are, there's one that's part of the health group, which is connected to UCLA. Um, there is a school that is, uh, has a simil- similar mission to ours in San Francisco, the Armstrong School. You generally find more schools on the East Coast. There's okay. a lot more special needs schools, and they don't seem to be a lot here. And this is not, Orange County is not a big believer. I mean, people go to, for religious reasons, they go to, uh, schools and sometimes you have kids who are very bright or their their families are pushing them into being very bright and they go to some of the you know uh, sort of private schools but or generally our public schools are pretty good and so many parents are this isn't a culture where we're, people are dying to send their kids a lot of time to private schools and especially special needs private school uh-huh. so it's up to us to really do a great job because it's usually not in the budget when you're pregnant that you're thinking your kid is going to be dyslexic no have, no you never do have this school. Right. But, and then, but what I was going to just say yes. is that if we do our job right, and we usually see this, unless it's financial or people are moving, generally we get most of our parents stay. They'll stay at least till eighth grade because they'll look at the school and go, why do we need to go anyplace else? This is a really good education. I see. And that's what we're aiming to do. So we're talking about this private school, so obviously we're going to want to know the time remaining here. Are there scholarships and is your tuition comparable to other private schools in the region? It's comparable and actually cheaper if you look at what's just regular private schools like in the L.A. area or the San Francisco area. Um, It's not comparable, obviously, to religious schools that are being subsidized by a diocese or a synod. Mm -hmm. We don't have that kind of connection. We kind of... Basically, the tuition, it's a very tuition-driven school, but I think it's a pretty, and it's different prices for different grades, but it's a pretty, uh, I think, uh, uh, reasonable, a uh, very reasonable education for the kind of quality of education that it is. And services. Again, the, and the services, but we're, the, again, the only school of this kind in this area. So um, that's, and our mission is, is really learning. It's not other things where we have also a learning lab. The center of the school is for learning differences. So that is, but we do have financial aid. You do. And, uh, we call it tuition assistance, but you have to, you have to, get, there's a formula to get to that, uh-huh. to where you go to the business office and they will tell you sort of how to organize that. So we do, there is, you know, definitely we have a a broad range of different kids that come to the school. It's a uniform school, so nobody really knows, you know, anybody's money because you don't see it. Everybody's in the same uniform. But it's probably the uniform, no doubt, is designed to deal with some of those special needs sometimes, you know, like that. So it's not just any kind of uniform. Well, we really run out of time, Karen. I'm uh, so glad that we had a chance to talk to Karen Lerner, the principal of both the junior and senior high schools of Prentice School in the North Tustin area. uh, I'm so glad you could give us more information. There's a website that listeners can go to. It's uh, Prentice.org, P-R-E-N-T-I-C-E.org, or you can call 714-538-538. 4511. There's a 1-800 number, but you can check that out on the website. I'm not going to load up. Karen Lerner, thank you so much for being on Ask a Leader today. Thank you for having me. My next guest for the second half of the show 
will be David Sion, director of the U.S. Western Division of Medicare. We're having him back to focus on the rights of patients receiving care in this system. So don't go away. We'll make sure that this interview has something for everyone. Je parie que c'est des Santiago, viens faire un tour dans terrain vague Je vais t'apprendre un jeu rigolo, à grands coups de chaîne de vélo Je te fais tes bottes à la baston, moi j'y ai dit, laisse béton The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents For more information on this or other KUCI programs, visit KUCI .org or kucitalk.org. This is Michael Drake, Chancellor of the University of California, Irvine, and whenever I get the urge to hear the voice of independent music, I tune in to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine or over the web at kuci.org. My next guest is returning to Ask a Leader, David Sion, the Regional Administrator of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid to talk about the rights and the benefits that patients get and should expect from their federal medical insurance programs. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, David Sion. Hi, thanks for having me on. I'm glad you can be here so that we can, you know, peel back all of the myths that are being bandied about, about health care delivery in this country as the the, all of the campaigns heat up, whether it's the, the congressional, the senatorial, or the presidential elections, I'd like to call on you, the man of the hour, to uh, deal straight ahead with the rights and the benefits that Medicare patients are entitled to. Let's start with, um, they are entitled to pick their own health care provider. Well, that's correct. If you're in the original Medicare program, uh, you can choose any physician or hospital that works with Medicare. There are some, uh, at least physicians out there, who've opted out of uh, taking Medicare patients. But other than that, you do have a, a wide freedom of choice there. And so but the, the available physicians might be expanded someone if there is a, in a secondary insurance, so that between Medicare and some secondary insurance, it is a, 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 um, an unlimited array of physicians from which one can choose. Right, but they have to you know, have the capacity to take care of you, and sometimes uh, you do get issues around that. I myself uh, had an orthopedic appointment today, and it's two weeks since the problem started. But, I see. You know, they're busy mm -hmm. to get the one you want. All right, right. Okay. Well, there's, there's folks, that's, even administrators have to check in with that. Um, so, well, let's talk about then um, some, uh, there's some billing issues now. So how does the billing work? That's another benefit of, uh, so that the patient knows that they're safe from being overbilled, double billed. Well, right. It's a good point. There are at least when we're talking about outpatient services, there are uh, participating and non-participating doctors. Those that are in the participating categories, uh, you don't pay them. They bill us directly, uh, and you only have to pay if the, you have a 20% coinsurance. If you don't have insurance for that, you would pay that at the time of service. Uh, there are some docs who are not participating in that formal sense, but nonetheless work with Medicare. And with those providers, uh, you have to pay them up front and you submit the claim to, to us. But in either case, if you have Medicare, you have this price protection that the physician or the lab or whomever can't charge you anything over our fee schedule plus your uh, copayment. So that's one of the rights that you have in Medicare. You're protected by uh, the federal fee schedule for the services. And that's available on the website? Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's what we can. We have the website that people can go to. Um, that's the, I'm trying to search it's it Medicare here. Medicare.gov. Medicare.gov or the health and human, HHS.gov will have some additional kinds of things. But, the, but they will be able to look at that definitive fee schedule on Medicare.gov. Well, I don't know that it would be so easy to look up the fees because what we pay a particular physician 
uh, or other service is adjusted for uh, geography and some other factors. Right. Uh, so it, it's a complicated thing. But if you call one hundred one eight hundred Medicare, our operators can tell you uh, what the what the fee is for Medicare for a particular locality for a particular service. And I know for seniors who may be finding it difficult to navigate the net, though, that one eight hundred Medicare is a really important place. And it's uh, I'm I'm uh, wanting to say that in my research for this program, there one senior friend of mine who's been a beneficiary of the program for the last six or seven years, um, she's given you all hats off in Medicare, how you're administering this um, this billing issue. And she was going to be double billed and uh, she checked it out and uh, Medicare swooped in and took care of that for her. She, uh, they were, that was a fraudulent uh, overbilling of her, in her particular case, an EKG or something like that. So uh, hats off to you for uh, doing a great job. That She is not an easy customer to satisfy, so I, I was glad to get her appraisal of this. Uh, we do the best we can. <laughs> well, then, now what about where uh, a patient is having a difficulty getting what they need and are, they are being denied something and they're entering into the appeal service. Okay. How well, will that work? Um, sure. Let, let's take the, the, the basic great divide here. Um, down where, where you're located, uh, almost half the people in our program are, or a little more than half, are in that original Medicare program. And in that program, you go where you want, you get the service, the provider bills, uh, and if we, for some reason, don't think it should be paid, the provider uh, is left uh, in the lurch, not you, because you're protected. Um, on the other hand, some people have chosen to join private plans that administer their own Medicare products, uh, like Secure Horizons or like uh, Kaiser Senior Advantage and others. Mm -hmm. uh, and what's fundamentally different about most of those products is you don't just go and show up at the orthopedist or show up for a surgery. Uh, you go to your doctor who's part of their plan. Your doctor decides you need a service and it gets entered into their system and they may disapprove it before you even have the service. That's what's different in these privately administered health plans. And sometimes uh, you may not agree with their determination and you think, you know, I really need that service. And you have an option to appeal that to the health plan. Uh, and if you're not successful there, there's a second level appeal you can make to us. Uh, and you can ask that your appeal be expedited if it's something that needs a, a speedy overnight resolution because of your the service that you require. But the, the point is that uh, just because you hear the word no, you're you're never really done. There's lots of avenues to appeal, and it doesn't cost you anything. And we don't, um, you know, look askance at people that appeal. We're happy to help people take advantage of their rights. In fact, that's what we're talking about today. And is the best way, though, to do it online? Is that where, uh, the, the most um, direct path? Uh, okay. If you're in a Medicare Advantage plan, your physician decides you need a particular service, and they say that you do not, uh, you file your appeal with the plan that you belong to. Uh, the notice that they're going to give you saying, we don't think you need this service, will have on it information about how uh, you can appeal. And if that first level appeal is not satisfactory, you'll get information about how to do the next level appeal, or your doctor can do the appeal for you. Okay, okay. So, it, but it's through through the website or the uh, a it's call? It's through your or, health plan. Okay, through, through the, the plan. plan at the office. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, then, um, how about the emergency care? How does Medicare deal with uh, somebody's not going to get the uh, the clearance before they haul into the ER? They want to be attended to right away. What happens with the aftermath of that? Very important uh, for folks to understand at the threshold, Medicare is an American program. So you, whether you're in fee-for-service or whether you're in one of these Advantage plans, you have the right to get emergency services when and where you need them anywhere in the United States. So if you're going off to a trip to Canada or somewhere mm -hmm. else, you might want to buy a policy that covers you. Some of the Medicare Advantage plans do offer uh, some things like that longhand. But the point is, if you're in uh, one of these Advantage plans, you don't need to ask permission if it's an emergency. You just get yourself to the emergency room, uh, and then you or your family needs to tell them what plan you're in, uh, and then the, the facility or you can get in 
touch with your plan, and then they're going to figure out what to do when you get beyond the emergency uh, situation that you're in, and you're still going to be responsible for whatever you know, out of pocket, you might be liable for for the emergency room visit, whatever's in your plan materials. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, for those of you who've just joined us, my guest is David Sion, the regional director for the 11 Western states, um, and uh, here to talk about the rights and benefits that patients get and should expect from their federal medical insurance programs on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming to you live on the web at KUCI.org. So we're talking about emergency uh, uh, benefits. Now, when you talk about the old plan, it's about it's Medicare strictly versus the new plan would be Medicare with a supplemental private insurance. Is that the distinction? No, no. Um we're talking about something different, as a matter of fact. So the traditional, what we call original Medicare plan, where you pay 20%, we pay 80%, people often buy supplemental coverage to cover the things that that doesn't pay for. Okay. But then there's another category of plan, and you see advertisements for these all mm-hmm. the time, probably right. in Orange County, that are private companies that sell a product and we buy it for you, sometimes you have a premium to pay as well, that replaces your government Medicare program with their private program. For example, if you join Kaiser's plan, then you're pretty much restricted to going to Kaiser's doctors and hospitals. Um, But what they do is they make sure that they've got enough people to take care of you, so, you know, there's some advantages there, and they offer some benefits in these plans sometimes that aren't available in original Medicare. So do they have what is considered a cap rate for, um, for Medicare uh, patients in those programs? Well, that's, uh, that is the technical word for it. We pay them a rate, which is called a capitated rate, a per-person rate, which is actually individually calculated uh, for the risk profile of each member every month. Okay. So, but is, is anybody in uh, danger of topping off their benefits? You mean uh, reaching the end of their Reach, benefits? Reaching the end of their benefits. No, there's a catastrophic limit on the in those Medicare Advantage plans after which you don't pay anymore. Okay. I know this because my, uh, my aunt is in assisted living, and she had a few hospitalizations this year, and she just got this letter from her plan saying, you know, in another $500, you don't have to pay anymore. So that's in your plan materials. Oh, she doesn't have to pay anymore, but she still gets, but the benefits continue. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So that's the limit is on the... That's called an out-of-pocket limit. Right. In other words, after you spend that much, you don't have to pay anymore. Okay, but they don't call it deductibles there. A deductible is where, that's where you pay the first dollar. So some plans, you have to spend the first $150 or the first $200. Uh, In Medicare, I think it's like 600 and something. Okay, okay. So the next item is um, the what about an issue, a complaint? Now this is not appeal, but a, how would a uh, patient raise a complaint they have with a provider or a a point of service? Okay, there's a couple um, scenarios here. If you have problem with the quality of the medical care you receive in an institution like a hospital. Um, we have um, organizations in each state made up of healthcare professionals that uh, evaluate those complaints. They're called quality improvement organizations, and the 1-800-Medicare people can point you to them. Um, if you're in a health plan, and let's say you don't like something about the service, like they don't answer the phone or they don't speak my language um, the way I like them to, you can file what's called a grievance with the plan, and they have to adjudicate that, and we uh, look over the shoulders of those things. And there's a number of circumstances where things like that, where people might file a grievance, like the hours of uh, operation aren't enough, or you're not able to find a specialist for your particular needs, and so forth. Well, a a particular scenario comes to mind, and I want to to advance this uh, on a, a dear friend's behalf, is uh, what if it's just a, a way for the patient to express the kind of care? I'm thinking of an oncological radiologist, mm-hmm. and the person was—I mean, they were—it wasn't just a flat affect. They were really berating this patient. The patient wasn't heard. That it was—it was just a really bad service they were rendering. It was. It was a it was a bad stereotype we were thinking, and I'm not right. going to say which stereotype it was. Mm-hmm. But, but would that would it be appropriate for the patient 
to be more empowered, uh, although it's this person is, you know, approaching a hospice uh, care, but uh, appropriate for the patient or the family to file a grievance about this, the kind of the appropriateness of the kind of direction that the radiological oncologist was providing. What, what would be the, the way to use Medicare at its best? Well, if you're in one of the health plans, uh, that would mean that that doctor was part of their network and it would be appropriate to grieve that, with, to file a grievance with the health plan about uh, the service you got from that individual who, after all, is their representative. Uh, if you're in our fee-for-service Medicare program, um, we leave the disciplining of physicians up to the state medical board, and I think if you received poor treatment at the hands of a provider, it would be appropriate uh, to indicate as much to the medical board, or if it was in the context of a hospital, you might want to direct your complaint to the hospital, which has some responsibility for uh, the behavior of their medical staff. And, and the, the kind of circumstance you mentioned happens a lot. Yes. I'm, it happens a lot. I'm, I'm sure it does. And um, I think the the point here is that we can see on the Internet there's all these very, uh, we don't know how scrupulous, uh, and very decentralized kinds of critiquing uh, systems going on, and we don't know uh, what that's about. So that's why I'm leaning on Medicare to be uh, to give us a a, a kind of a, an arena, a domain where we right. can uh, express what um, we think might be better. Because th this is a this is become it's become a terminal condition that this person had to deal with, and uh, and so forth. So I I'm glad to hear that those are the avenues, and what role. Um, does Medicare play in uh, maybe facilitating hospice while that's brought up? Well, um, so Medicare provides coverage uh, for hospice services uh, for individuals who have a condition that um, it looks like it could take their life in six months, and they've made a decision that rather than having active treatment for that um, that condition, they're going to choose to have uh, treatment to help them stay at home and, and, and deal with the issues around their illness and not, to use a better word, not fight it any longer. So if you went into hospice and you had cancer, you couldn't get chemo while you're in hospice because chemo is something that's supposed to fix the cancer and basically you've you decided not to uh, when you're in hospice. And um, the folks at 800 Medicare can point you to hospices that serve your particular community uh, if you need that, although most people tend to make that election, you know, through their physician. Well, but I found out with hospice, too, though, it's um, th in the same case I'm going to bring up, give them a lot of airtime, is that it seemed like there were different hospice entities. They had, one of them had a stake in not bringing that patient on very early. I mean, that, that there was a, a, a communication that the pr patient wasn't ready yet, but when asking a different person in that hospice organization, they were very much uh, eligible right. for that. So I, I suppose um, that's, I don't know that Medicare takes up uh, an oversight of how uh, those parameters are communicated with those entities, or if that patient's best advised to go to the to that hospice management and talk about the clarity in which they're uh, admitting. Well, yeah, I mean, that that's definitely a concern and one that you may uh, want to raise with us because that is kind of a, a broader concern about what the organization's up to. And there are, mm -hmm. uh, sad to say, in hospice providers, or some providers are not as good as others. Uh, some, some people are not as scrupulous as other people, and, you know, we need to know that. And it's important because I think hospice is... So off the radar in the American sort of sensibilities, off the radar of our culture, of, of healthcare, health, uh, health receiving, uh, um, I'll try this again, with receiving healthcare. And so uh, it, uh, to take on hospice, one has to have a certain mind of this, this there is an inevitability of an end of the death. Right. And so uh, it seems like America needs to uh, understand the, the real beauty of this kind of a service and to be receptive to it. And so hospice has a role in communicating their, their piece in this to make, uh, to get people on board with what, what particularly remarkable service it is. Since yeah, I think we have a long way to go. Uh, and, and we did do our a monthly story on hospice and we'll probably get around to it again. Well, let's do uh, that it's here. It's not that well understood. You oh, know. Right, right. 
and it, I think it's it's dicey. We we all of us know of cases where somebody was on hospice and then they came off and then they went back yeah. on again. So you can. Yeah. the six months, nobody knows when that might be. And, and I think the trend is that uh, uh, this is becoming a hospice show. And I don't necessarily need for that, but that the uh, most people are getting their care in the uh, the last its last day or week in, uh, instead of a, a longer period with hospice. Right, right. That's true. Um, but the, the great majority of people, at least in California, get on board with hospice within days of their uh, demise, and they don't really get to take advantage of it. And and that's the point of hospice is to take advantage of it, really sink in. True, but uh, unlike cereal boxes, we do not have an expiration date. And I've seen people in my family, and yes. I'm, sure, I'm sure you have too, make incredible uh, recoveries from illnesses, and I understand that physicians are in the business of healing people, and so it kind of cuts against our grain to sort of throw in the towel. I think some people look at it that way, and that's not the right way to look at it at all. I, I think, you know, but each family has their own circumstance and their provider, and it's a very private thing. Our role is to make sure that people know about what's available, and then, you know, they make their decision. But I think, you know, gradually that we're getting more acceptance of uh, this you know, the value of this benefit and getting much more clarity and certainty about disease processes as we are able to begin to sort of tease different cancers apart based on genetic markers and really know which drugs are going to work for who and so forth. And I'm very optimistic that we're going to be in a much more, you know, uh, in a few years, we'll be in a much better place around pinpointing what the best course is for individuals. So, well, we could, I know we've talked a bit about it now, but that may be something we can speak exclu- talk exclusively about at a later show but so um now are there any other takeaway messages one of them is that uh, it's really important that non-beneficiaries of medicare understand being a beneficiary of medicare so they can be an advocate for their loved one very much so i mean most of the work we do is working with adult children of uh, Medicare folks, and I know an awful lot of folks in their 50s and 60s who are in that caregiver role, and we really try to target that sort of sweet spot of an audience of people that are, you know, literate and, and typically are computer literate and have access to the Internet, and we're really trying to make a great effort to, to help those folks as caregivers and also to help them so that they're, they've got the kind of materials they need when it's their turn to take advantage of the program. Are there any other, David Sion, and any other... Uh, takeaway messages that uh, we haven't covered in this short time together here? Well, the fundamental message is there are lots of avenues uh, to appeal either unfavorable payment decisions or unfavorable access to service decisions. And the first no or even the second no uh, should leave people undeterred because they have a right uh, you know, to, to to clamor and demand the services that they and their doctors think that they need. And I want people to go away understanding that it's their right and they should take advantage of it. The example I often use is once yes. I got a ticket at a parking meter at like one minute to six, but I knew it was six because I had the radio on, you know, in the store I was in and I fought it and I won. And that was my right to do that. And similarly, if you need a service and you're not getting it, by all means, speak up. And so that's the beauty. That's why you're here on the show today to, to, to give lip service to that so that people know how, how approachable this whole uh, bureaucracy is and how much you, you're, you have the interest in the patients. That's right. And uh, there are there, uh, as far as Medicare um, cutting measures that are uh, at the cusp mm-hmm. here at the end of this, this particular calendar year that may affect uh, what will be happening with the beneficiaries for That's Medicare right. in, uh, in a later iteration of the program. Mm-hmm. So okay. we'll have to keep a, well, keep a watch of that. So I want to thank you, David Sion, for being on our show. He is the regional administrator of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid to talk about rights and benefits. And I want to remind everybody, again, it's on the web. You get all the information and more at www, as I said, .medicare.gov and find out more. David Sion, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. That's a wrap for today. I want to thank you all for joining me on the program and Ask a Leader. Next week, we're going to have on Les Stevens, who will talk as a uh, seed company corporate uh, member. He's going to talk about how he bridges the young entry-level business employees with the conventional corporate culture. 
And then for the second half, we'll have Tai Chi Master Truong lead us like no other. Thanks for joining me. Next up is Rose George Rosales with his hat a hat. Thank you.